out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. You get the gist. We love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn slightly REM. Not quite, but very close, because I spoke to their manager and uh, I think councillor. Yes, it's Bertus Downs, the fourth, to find out a bit more about... I was going to say life, love, poetry, but, you know, managing a band. The early years, so uh, this is the interview. And after a bit of chat and uh, getting to know each other, in an interesting way, um, he laid the groundwork of this interview. So um, I'll leave that in, because it did make me smile when I heard it again. Anyway, um, yes, as we are about to launch in to the interview, this is what Berta said. Take it away. If you ask me something that feels a little too close to the bone, I am a lawyer. So, you know, it's questions about like, well, is it true that such and such contract was for this and that money? I will say, don't talk about that. You know, I, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about specifics like that. But no. I'm happy to talk more in general about, yes. you, know, um, you know, kind of, as you said, the way we, me, you know, kids starting out, how we navigated and where we think we, you know, did okay, didn't do okay, what we would, you know. I'm happy to have those kind of general conversations. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely fine. Don't worry, I'm not going to, I've yeah. never, not, n- yes, I've, I've always wanted to have a, um, I want I to... Like, you, know, you ask whatever you want. If, I, if there's something I feel like I can't answer, I'll just say it in a friendly way and it won't be contentious. It'll be, I can't, can't go there. Yeah, and no, 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 that. no, no. But that's, I doubt that's... you'll even ask anything. So, so, so what, fun. just briefly then, what was your kind of teen years like before you, you know, were even at college? I just wondered what you were doing. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, my teen years, let's see, I played in the, I, I guess I would say that I'm not like a lot of people who ended up being in management or agents or, I, I don't feel like I was a frustrated musician who wanted to be in bands and never really did that and ended up kind of working. There are a lot of people who fit that profile. I was always interested in music. Ever since I was a little kid, my parents played, uh, let's see, the big songs were Petula Clark downtown and uh, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. Uh, the girl from Ipanema, that kind of you know show tunes, the pop stuff in the early '60s. I'm I'm 63, yeah. uh, born in '56. So I, you know, early days I was into whatever my parents were playing, and then I guess my first time I actually bought a record was I heard on the local radio station this big hit song called Wichita Lineman by a guy named Glenn Campbell, handsome cowboyish kind of guy, beautiful beautiful songs that he wrote with Jimmy Webb, or in some cases Jim Webb wrote them himself. But Glenn Campbell was a star, and he, he got played on WQXI, and I went to Treasure Island and bought my first piece of plastic with music on it. And it was, for, I don't know what it was, 298 or 398 in terms of price, and uh, maybe more or less, I don't know. But it was, it was definitely not a huge investment, you know, but I was cutting, gra- cutting lawns and working landscaping and working in restaurants and saving money, and I would buy music with it. So I guess the first band I truly loved was the Almond Brothers band. Yeah. And I really got into the Almond Brothers. I was not ever a guitar player. I decided at the age of 19 that I was just too old to learn how to play guitar. All the people I knew had already been playing guitar five or six years, so why would I start so late in my life like, to learn how to play guitar? That would be stupid. I realize now what a dumb mistake that was. But I um, instead, um, I was in the Almond Brothers, a little bit into the people like Leonard Skinner and Marshall Tucker that were also regionally. You know, I was born in, I was growing up in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. Home of the greatest governor now. I'm joking. Not at all. National, international news. So anyway, I grew up listening to Southern Rock, I guess. And then about ninth, 10th grade, I heard some Neil Young. Really liked that. Somewhere along in there, we started going to a club where this band called Rush was playing. They were from Canada and kind of exotic. And I thought of them as a good bit older than me. Turns out they're not that much older than me. They were just, they were just guys in their early 20s playing for other guys in their 
you know, late teens. So those were kind of, I guess, the people I liked before I went off to college. And yes. In college, I started getting exposed to some, I don't know, things like Tom Petty and um, ended up toward the end of college. And I graduated in 78, so my transition from college to law school, that would have been when The Clash was coming along. And they were a band I really, really liked. I liked the Buzzcocks a lot. Um, I liked XTC a lot. Uh, and I remember being in the in the old um, there was a our library the law library or the um, actually the the main university library had a uh, area where you could go read Melody Maker and New Music Express. Oh yeah. And I remember as a kind of bored law student procrastinating on studying and reading contracts, reading all the stuff I had to study for law school. I'd go up to those. I would just go and read. You know, there wasn't an internet. There wasn't a way to read it unless you got the actual paper of enemy and melody maker and i remember kind of the couple of months or weeks or whatever it was right around sort of 79 80 when the covers were elp and pink floyd and then the next time i looked the covers were the sex pistols and the clash and other more obscure punk bands but i kind of remember that changing the guard it was like okay whoever's running enemy and and Melody Maker, I don't know who they are, I don't know who owns them, or uh, all of a sudden, it kind of shifted from this prog rock, old world, you know, guys in their 30 bands to these, you know, punks that were doing it themselves, and all the, you know, cliches of, of that world, but I just remember, kind of, that was right when I was in law school, and the other thing that happened in law school is that I was friendly with a couple of guys in town, I was friendly with a bunch of people in town, but two of them were um, a guy named Bill Berry, and, and I knew him from the concert committee at the university because we both were on this committee of 15 or 20 people who brought concerts to our campus like most schools have university unions that kind of thing and um then i knew peter from the record store wax street where he was a clerk and kind of the the classic high fidelity record clerk who knew everything about bands and he certainly loved neil young and he knew i loved neil young so he was kind of my neil young coach yes and would advise me which which records were worth spending five bucks on? You know, was it this official thing or that classic album or that bootleg? And then they started a band and I started kind of volunteering and helping them out. Yes. 20 years ago right now. Exactly. So that's, that's all while I was in law school, graduated in 81. They started really kind of going places, 82, 83, first record, all that. And by then it was kind of like a volunteer job, like a hobby. I was teaching at the law school a bit. Um, that was kind of my main job was the teaching but then I was able to help these guys out just as a started as a friend, but you know, eventually became a professional relationship. And uh, that was was a long time ago, and we're still still kind of doing the same thing. Yes, well, absolutely, because it's interesting because that period, the 1980s, which I suppose was when, because I'm a bit younger, I was born in the mid 60s, so I'm in my mid 50s now. So I started to because yep. because up to then I'd been listening to what was kind of given to me on Radio One and the BBC and Top of the Pops and then my, and listened to my brother who was right. who was 7 years older so he was probably near your age so he right. he introduced me to that whole world of prog rock and a bit of heavy metal but when punk happened he really said no 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 that's not real music so in the 80s i suppose then that's when i started discovering music which was happening and just kind of new i suppose right. and it was kind of like the john peel show and the nme yeah and- it was like your generation you were only 15 or so when when uh it turned 1980. You were you were in your mid mid teens, so you kind of had your own music to claim. Yes, and so you'd had that post punk period, which was quite exciting, obviously, with um, people like, you know, the, the Gang of Four and um, yes, right, Peel. And... I should have mentioned that. the Gang of Four and uh, 
those other bands kind of from right around then that, that I always thought was great. There was, I guess obviously the Smiths and, and, and uh, Joy Division and those. But was, I, I, I was not personally as into those bands as a lot of other people. There was only so much time and uh, money you had to, to devote when you're trying to study law also. Yes, absolutely. Because it was probably Magazine, Gang of Four and Peel with the name, the bands that most people mentioned. So during the 80s, there was definitely a shift in the musical kind of fabric. And there were those bands that came Let along. Let me ask like, you one thing. Do you know about the link between R.E.M. and the Gang of Four? No. Well, we opened a tour for them in 1980, in 1981. So Gang of Four had entertainment out, Damn Good, uh, Please Send Me Evenings and Weekends. That, it was just their, their breakthrough record. And they went on tour on the East Coast of America. It was only about nine or eight or nine dates. But R.E.M. was the opening band for about two weeks. It ended in Athens, Georgia, with a big party at the end of the show at the 40 Watt Club. But Gang of Four, the band, has credited many times as being the band that taught them how to be a band. They, they learned from those guys. They were, they'd been going about a year and a half. They started in April of 80. So this was a, you know, a little over a year later. It was June of 81. And New York, Boston, D.C., Philly, Atlanta. I, those are the shows I remember. But it was a handful of shows, maybe, maybe eight or nine shows. And that is literally when R.E.M. felt like, okay, we could do this. We could, we could make this our career. This, this could be a thing. Yes. Um, they kind of credit Gang of Four, who were a few years older, all university people from Leeds, but they just really got on with them and really appreciated the way they got treated. It. And even though they were, quote, only the support band, only the only band, they just felt really a kinship with those guys and a, and a mentorship in a very positive way. And that carried through, I mean, all the, you know, it, 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 they learned a lot. They learned a lot from Gang of Four as, as a band and as a, um, as a unit. Yes, absolutely. So look, when I've been doing a lot of these interviews for the bands in the 80s, they have a five-year narrative. Normally they get together, they have 12 months getting something that sounds quite interesting. The DJ John Peel would often give it a play, which was good, a John Peel session, which was even better. Then that first album. The second album, things are going a bit tricky. The, the other thing that catches a lot of bands out is the admin, not realising what they were signing away, the publishing. So how did you discover and work your way through that world? Because I know there's a very famous quote by Hunter S. Thompson about the sharks in the music yeah. business. And that's, the, and that's the good side of it or whatever. That's and that's the quote. good side, yes. Yeah. Well, there were a few things I would say that were instrumental in that. One, they're really smart. The guys are. Two, I was certainly happy to help out and certainly, um, you know, learning as I went too. And, I, you know, I'm reasonably intelligent and can, can try to figure things out. But I also had good, good mentors. I had good people I could learn from, other lawyers and people who were willing to help me out from a professional standpoint. I went to lots of, you know, seminars, stuff that nowadays there's tons of seminars and all, but I would go to one in particular in New York called the Practicing Law Institute and a very good friend of mine who only recently died. He was, I don't know, 20 years older than me and he, and he uh, had a seminar called Counseling Clients in the Entertainment Industry. You would learn a whole lot about current cases. We studied the Bruce Springsteen matter with his first manager, John, um, not John, uh, Mike Appel, and then the, the litigation that ensued over that, the mistakes, the things that got, um, you know, just the way that all worked out. We, we literally studied that stuff, and it was a, it was a good education for me. And, and like I say, I had, I had other people kind of looking over my shoulder and helping me out, so I wasn't flying blind and practicing law and not knowing what I was doing. But, again, it goes back to the guys themselves were really smart. They understood what publishing was. They understood that it was – important and lasted kind of forever, or at least a long, long time, at least their lifetime. And they weren't going to just kind of cavalierly um, sign 
pieces of paper somebody gave to them and said, hey, you're great, sign here. They just weren't going to do that. They were, they were um, pretty sensible about all that. So they were good clients, and um, they were not in a hurry. That's the other thing. The two other factors I'd say with R.A.M., they were not in a hurry, and they were living in a small town in the South. So even though Athens is a pretty cool small town in the South, it wasn't New York, it wasn't L.A., it wasn't London. It, there wasn't this huge scene that they felt like they had to be a part of and um, jump someone else's train. That's the other band I was trying to think of, The Cure. The Cure, um, yes. Kind of at that same time. And I, I've always wondered what that song about is about, but I think I kind of get what jumping someone else's train is about. So anyway, um, I felt like Ariam, they were never in a hurry. They never needed to make a bunch of money from it. They never wanted to necessarily make a bunch of money from it. They just wanted to be a good band and write good songs, and they were willing to take some time and be patient. So the first time they ever went to New York was more than a year into their career, like a year and a half into their career. Yes. And that was, um, you know, a lot of bands would, would write a couple songs or a few songs, get in the van, go to New York, hope to get signed, hope to get discovered. R.A.M. just never was, they were much more interested in, in making the songs that would, you know, they wanted, if they wrote some good songs, they wanted to write more good songs. They were incredibly prolific. But at the same time, they weren't in a hurry, and they were living in a place pretty pretty not known for its music at the time, Athens, Georgia. So all those things, I think, coalesced into a... It wasn't even a strategy. It was just kind of the way they operated, which is that the, um, you know, they took their time, and they, they tried to do it uh, in, in a... In a Yes, because there was a. I didn't realise, though, though I was around at the time in the 80s, just how many amazing bands there were. But like I said, most of them didn't survive over that five-year narrative. And a lot of them, when I've asked them about, you know, what, what, what they would have done differently or what their big mistake was, was not having a manager was kind of one that's really come up a lot, like not having somebody who could really guide them. So did you feel that you were able to be that person who gave... gave no, it the other thing is these, every management band relationship is different. In my case, I was a lawyer, and, and I am a lawyer, uh, trained as a lawyer. But in a lot of ways, REM is kind of self-managed. I mean, their collective wisdom is always what their guiding principle was. What do those four guys want? Their band. It's their career. It's their legacy. And so starting pretty early days, that was kind of the guiding principle. Is they did need somebody to make the phone calls and eventually answer the emails and help with some of the administration and all the kinds of things you're talking about in terms of the, they don't simply want to be in a bunch of meetings with labels and also they need somebody to be their proxy and their, their representative and all that. I was able to fill that role, but they did not need a whole lot of uh, direction or ideas from people like me. They, they frankly didn't want them. They, they wanted to have their ideas. They wanted it to be their vision and what got on the record and on the stage and when they went on tour. So isn't there you know, a, a good uh, healthy dialogue and conversation and I'm not saying we didn't have uh, ongoing discussions about all of those kinds of things but they didn't really need a, a, a person 20 years older who knew all the ropes and told them what to do that was never what they needed and I certainly wasn't that person yeah. much more like somebody trying to help them do what they wanted to do but make it work yeah. it's much more what the role always was and also, did you realise, because in the 80s, there was a couple of really major bands. There'd been Orange Juice, and then there was like um, like a band called The Go-Betweens from Australia. But then it was when the Smiths, oh, yeah. the Smiths oh, yeah. appeared in 83, and they ran to 87. A very turbulent band. They didn't have a good manager, or they didn't have any management. Um, things didn't end well, did they? But 
the Smiths, did they were they a bit of a game changer when when you when you know REM saw Morrissey Ma on stage and think, oh right, we've. This I is- don't. I don't know. The short answer is I don't know because I don't recall ever being in the same place, like at the same festival. I could be wrong, and maybe we did play at the same festival or on the same bill somewhere, but I don't recall that. So I think to the extent that there was a whole lot of influence between the Smiths and our guys, it was much more just their records. I mean, everybody heard their records if they saw their videos, to the extent you were seeing videos in those mid-'80s days. But I'm not aware of any, like unlike U2, where the U2 guys were around. We played, we played uh, I guess, uh, the Longest Day concert with them in 85, Werchter and Torhut in Belgium. Um, we, we kind of were around U2 a lot. There was a lot of camaraderie between those two bands. I don't recall that being the case with the Smiths, but I I don't necessarily have an infallible memory, and I may have missed the detail. Mm. And I know they've since certainly been close with Johnny Marr. Peter and Johnny Marr lived in the same city for a while when he lived in Portland. And um, I know they're, you know they're kind of, in a lot of ways, very similar in terms of their approach mm. and their role in band, mm. that kind of stuff. And so in the 80s... But certainly the go-between, the go-betweens you mentioned, they, they opened our 95 tour, um, both in Europe and in uh, Australia, and they were very close friends of the band. Um, they loved those guys. Yes, stunning. But, in you know, because every band has that moment, and, and you know, R.E.M. for five years, from sort of 84 to 88, you were bringing out one album a year and touring and everything. Did, was Correct. that, was that, did you, looking back, did that feel like an amazing roller coaster of a period, you know, of a period of creativity? Because the sound of the band changed, you started getting some major hits and became sort of from college circuit to sort of major sort of arenas. Yeah, but it was, it was a longer period than that. I would say the, the years you described, 83 when Murmur came out, all the way through 87 when, uh, when Document came out, that was like a roller coaster that was only going in one direction, up. I mean, it, it kept going up. I mean, a roller coaster, I think, of the cliche we use about a roller coaster is a lot of ups and downs. There weren't a lot of downs during that period. They built very gradually, very steadily, from murmur to reckoning to pageant, or reconstruction done in London, pageant, document. That, that was kind of like a stair-step incremental build. Their first platinum record was their fifth record, which is kind of remarkable these days. I mean, you have a record that's finally successful in that in that metric uh, five years and five albums in your career is pretty late. But then after that, Green came out, had a couple of big songs. We went with Warners at that time, had better worldwide distribution, and we really liked a lot of the creative people at Warners. And then the following years, when what you're describing, 91, when Losing My Religion kind of surprisingly came out, became a big hit, that nobody expected Losing My Religion to be a big hit. But it did. And that was their seventh album. They'd been together 11 years. Yes. And then they didn't tour for another four years after that. And so none of it was planned, I would say. Certainly looking back, it looks like a brilliant strategy uh, to take five years off around uh, automatic and out of time. So it turned out. But it certainly wasn't any strategy. It was that the band was tired and didn't want to tour um, a couple of years in a row after touring all the way through the 80s. Yes, absolutely. And was there a period when, because with a few bands, well, got a lot really, they, they, they're sometimes recording an album and they kind of realise it's almost kind of the end and they know this is going to be it. Was there ever a sense with R.E.M. that there was kind of, it was a struggle to, to get the material, to get in the studio, to do it, and almost like, well, it, we, might, we might call it quits at the end of this because we just... Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the older a band gets, the more likely that happens every single time. I have a cliche. I, I think I made it up. It's not that hard to make a record. It's really hard to finish a record. And um, that just seems to be the case. I, every band I know, that's the case. I mean, 
I don't know all that many bands, but I, I think that what when you're young and, and incredibly prolific and the songs are just pouring out, the, the key is just getting them done and wrapped up. Then you get more options, you have more opportunities, you have more complexity, people's lives get more complicated, people are living in different places, and it's just, it's harder. It's harder to finish. It's harder to let one go. And you know what? We're past our time, so I think I have to say, I could talk all day about these guys and this stuff, but I think that's probably enough for me right now. And I've, got, I've actually got something else I'm supposed to be doing at 3 o'clock. Okay. But I really appreciate you uh, being willing to talk to me, and feel free to use as much of that or as little of it as you want. And, yes. Uh, Actually, could I could I just ask you one can I just ask you one question? Sure. What would you yeah. just what would you t say to your eighteen year old self that was starting out? Uh, good luck. <laughs> I would say um, you know the stuff that I feel like was important then. Um, in my case, the way it worked out was to if you're representing, if you're getting into management or, or lawyering and helping out representing talent. To me, at least with the talent I represented. I had a good personality for it because I really respected their art and what they wanted to do and was willing to do what I could to help make it realistic. And I, I think, you know, I was happy to sublimate whatever my own opinion was or my own, you know, it just, it, it, I, I just can't remember who I learned it from, but I learned from other bands, it's their decision. It's their band. My job was not to do that. My job was to take their decision and go, make it make it real make it do as well as it can and they did really well because they made good decisions and most importantly they wrote really good songs yes absolutely anyway look thank you ever so much yeah. hey thanks for having me on and uh, send me a link when it's done and i'll be happy to be happy to share it around and, and uh yeah thanks a lot david you take care you too take care bye-bye thanks bye-bye and that was me in conversation with bertus dans the fourth there you go Yes, he of REM fame. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived, and you can find those on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. So anyway, thank you for listening. Have a great week. <laughs>